0: Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective podcast. Brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Hell's Bay Boatworks, and Orvis Fly Fishing. In today's episode, we head north, way north to the waters of New England to listen to Captain Kyle Schaefer share with us his love for chasing striped bass on the flats, how he got started in his career by hanging out around fly shops in Colorado. And what he has learned from working as a manager of a lodge in the Bahamas and why he spent one long summer taking cold showers. Kyle is an avid fisherman and outdoorsman who also holds tightly to conservation and helping others understand the everyday ways that they can protect the fish and waters that they love. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to leave a review and share this podcast with those who you know. We are grateful for your support. Thanks for listening. This is The Captain's Collective.
1: I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you, you know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And then it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes this that quiet space is is what we need, and especially in this day and age. If you have a fly rod in your hand, it's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. No one else knew anything anyway, and you just just definitely making it up if you're going along.
0: But. So what grandpa and dad would tell me is like, all right, where's an old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning at? So look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. All right. Hey, Kyle, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. I'm excited to interview you and talk to you about striped bass and some of just the different experiences you've had in, in coming up as a guide. But before we kind of do a deep dive into uh, the Northwest and what the fishing looks like up there, I'd love just to hear about how you first got into guiding.
1: Yeah, definitely. Hunter. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I'm, I'm psyched to sit here and chat with you. Um, Definitely a fun thing to do while the snow is blowing outside for us in uh, in Maine here. But um, yeah, so my my route getting into to guiding, I I grew up on. Um, I was actually born in Cape Cod. Um, I had some of my first fishing experiences on the on the beaches out there with uh, with my mom and dad. And I spent most of my childhood growing up, you know, literally just a stone's throw away from some of these little tributaries to the Chesapeake Bay that were we filled with, um, you know, you could catch striped bass, bluefish, perch, catfish, um, you know, pickerel. I mean, just an enormous amount of different species, all in the same little brackish water holes that we were we were fishing. So it was it was really cool way to to get into fishing because it was just so much cool discovery and a lot of different species. So it, you know, yeah. that that definitely ignited it for me. And ever since then, I mean, I had a little bit of fishing in my family, but it really was just. You know, when that kid sees something with with wide open, bright eyes, and is just drawn to it, I guess that's that was kind of more my my story. And so I just continued to gravitate towards it. um, You know, and never really gave up. Um, I once I got out, uh, once I got out of college, I actually had a you know had the had the chance to go and pursue it as a a career and as as a lifestyle. Um, So I moved straight out to. Colorado where I hung around fly shops until I was given a job um and started my work and my way up there I worked for a couple different uh a couple different ranches out there as well and um seems like kind of as you do in the getting situated in a ski town you end up having wearing a bunch of different hats and a couple different jobs to get through the year but um fishing was always the main kind of the mainstay there for for at least the the summer and the warm seasons um after Colorado, I moved back to the East Coast. I always had a huge desire to guide in the saltwater. So, you know, I'd, I'd grown up on on boats. I'd, I'd grown up and the the salt was probably what I've, I've gravitated to- towards more throughout most of my life. But I did, you know, get the uh, great luxury of being able to learn a lot of skills out, out west. Some that I had to forget when I came to the salt and some that I could continue to, to hone as I... Um, you know, started to take some steps to hang my my sign to become a striped bass guide up here in southern Maine, um, and so I got you know I got I got kind of lucky the way that I guided that you know the way that I started my business I guess you know there's a lot of folks up here in New England do um, you know they might offer fly spin bait um, you know there's definitely some some specialists up here as well. And you know, I really, I'm really drawn to sight fishing and, and shallow water fishing, um, which I'm sure a lot of uh, a lot of your listeners in the southeast resonate with as well. And so, when I moved away from Colorado and settled back into Southern Maine, I moved onto this little tidal creek that you know would get a would be completely dry at low tide and would get a push of tide, and you know when there was about six or seven inches of of water on these flats you'd see stripers coming into these you know these shallow um these really shallow shelves as the water started to to flood up onto the flats and and as soon as there was enough water for those fish to get on the flats they flooded up there and when i was you know when i just had moved back to to maine the stripers were in in a really good really good shape and there's a really good distribution of, of of size class on the flats so you know i was I was kind of awestruck. Um, as I'm getting back into, to the salt, i you know, now I'm, I'm living steps away from a place that I can, you know, start to try and hone my, my sight fishing for, for striped bass craft. Um, and so that, that's really kind of what ignited it for me. It was always the plan to transition from freshwater guiding into, into salt. So I took, you know, I took some time, um, definitely took about probably four or five years while I was I actually had another little business that I I started and I I was just getting out of as I was putting up my my sign um in southern Maine for for guiding so it was it was a great transition and you know now I I specialize in just fly fishing for for striped bass up here um sight fishing is definitely the focus and we've got about a 10 foot tide up here too so we cannot sight fish through the entire tide you know we we may have to bounce from spot to spot to to stay in the shallow water or fish some shallow sloping beaches but we also have some really cool some really cool rocks and estuaries and channels and just a lot of different features and that's what i really love about the fishery Mm. up here is it's it's diverse there's a lot of way different ways to chase the fish and um from you know really really challenging one-on-one sight fishing to you know to the massive blitzes where all you need to get a is a fly in the in the mix and get it moving and and fish will take interest.
0: Yeah. And I'm excited just to talk about the different ways that you target those fish. And I'm definitely curious too, just to hear about how you kind of honed in on that after starting your professional career, as far as guiding goes, you know, out of your home state and then bringing kind of some of the stuff that you learned over in Montana back with you, but somewhere in there too, I know you were involved in, in working or Managing some lodges, where did that play in?
1: Yeah, so with the with the striped bass season, it you know it runs from about May to um, to mid to late October, so it gives us great opportunity to um, to fill that that winter season, our winter in the northern hemisphere. So I, um, you know, I got the chance to go down and uh, manage well actually it started with my wife and I really wanting a change, you know, really wanting, she wanted to get out of teaching and I wanted to fill my winters with something adventurous, um, you know, centered around the fly fishing industry and whether it was guiding for me or whether it was managing another place. And if I could figure out something for both my wife and I to do, that was, that was kind of the perfect scenario. So, you know, I started asking around and, um, and looking around for opportunities to go manage a lodge in the Bahamas. And, you know, I had a, I had a friend down that was, that was previously managing Bears Lodge, which my wife and I ended up taking over that position and he was, he was just getting out of it. So I went down and, and finished, uh, finished his season out as he, he was leaving. And then my wife and I prepared to go down for the next season. And it was just, I can't say enough about it. It was just such an awesome experience. I think as somebody that's coming from new england with a passion for sight fishing um to be able to be you know steps from some of the most productive flats in the bahamas is was just an absolute just kind of blew my mind you know i mean i'd be um this is such a great little story i mean we like the office that that we'd work out of is is looking directly out at this oceanside flat on south andros and you know we'd you'd look up and you could see tailing fish passing by you could step outside and take a few casts, you know, blow off some steam, get back to work. It was, it was a cool place that you could really kind of mix, mix work and play and and just kind of live that, um, you know, it's, it's truly a lifestyle job for sure. It never, it never stops, but there's a lot of really enjoyable parts of it.
0: Yeah. And it seems like, I mean, when you think about fishing in Montana and then you think about being up in the Northeast and then you, you know, think about being down at a lodge in the Bahamas, you know, those are three very different fisheries. What are some things that you've incorporated into how you fish that you feel like has helped you be successful in all three different types of environments?
1: Yeah, that's that. That's a I love that question because, um, and I actually, I when I was out west, I spent my time in in Colorado, and I was based in in Steamboat. Um, but you know, it 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 really. I found like once I was going back and forth between trout fishing and striped bass fishing, I learned, uh, you know, there was, I think you start to then tap into, you start to then tap into some of these greater rhythms, um, that are almost like translatable across all fisheries. And, you know, you go do a trip into another part of the world, or, you know, I spent a season guiding, um, for golden Dorado down in Argentina and got to, got to know that, that fishery pretty intimately throughout the season and then you take a step into a completely different fishery and it's i almost feel like i get the most out of spending time in those those different fisheries is is logging kind of that knowledge into your your intuitive sense it's almost like hard to hard to put a feel on it um you know it's hard to put like a, a one statement or a one skill that you're you're really kind of honing and learning but it's just that it's just those little intricacies that you know you you find that that kind of transgress and, and stretch across all these different fisheries that I think make you more comfortable and make you more confident stepping into them. And maybe that's a big part of it is just, okay, you know, had the ability to fish some different fisheries now, like, you know, and, and coming into some, having some success, coming into others, having a tough time. And of, and of course, you know, kind of logging all those observations, but I think just having the confidence to, um, to say, Hey, you know, we, we can figure this out and you know, we've, yeah. um, so yeah, I I really enjoy that. I love being able to kind of experience different different fisheries and take away those broader those broader uh messages from it.
0: Yeah, and looking back at all that, what did you feel like was the most formative in in you as an angler and then maybe it's the same thing or maybe it's different the most formative thing for you as a guide.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> I think as an angler um You know, I, when I spent, started spending all my time sight fishing, um, when I was in the Bahamas, I think, you know, casting and strategy around taking your shot and when to hold your fly still and when to, to wait for that fish to, you know, do something slightly different, to be a little bit more vulnerable, to get your shot in. I think a lot of those things in the Bahamas helped me, you know, immensely when taking those skills and then translating them back to, um to guiding in, in Maine. And, you know, I think just from a guiding perspective, so I think that was probably one of the biggest things as an angler. Um, but from a guiding perspective, I think, you know, it's, it's really just having some, that repetition. It surprises me what, you know, season to season, just watching, just watching an angler on the bow, you know, I'm, I'm definitely seeing them through different eyes, you know, the next year. Um, and, especially after spending the winter in Argentina, guiding for golden Dorado, you know, you're watching anglers target a fish that takes a specific, um, specific ingredients all to go into the presentation and what we're doing to, to, and to land the fish to be successful. And it's entirely different when you're fishing for striped bass. And so you're seeing some of these little things are get that, that are really important in, in both fisheries almost get a magnifying glass under them Mm. in, uh, you know, so like in Argentina, if if people didn't, you know, give multiple strip sets, these, you know, so often you'd get a fish from a golden Dorado that, that that fish would charge the fly so hard it would still be swimming through it when it ate your fly. So that fish might be coming at you. You know, it might be four feet closer to you with the fly in its mouth before you ever even are able to get tension on it. So I would really focus on that with clients down there. Is you know, it's nice long strip sets, holding your hand out in front of you, extending that hand all the way to the back, and that was something that you know I'd never really focused that hard on because it it wasn't essential. But you know, I'd see I'd see it pop up in different scenarios and and stripers, and I'd say that I I probably honed some of those little little pieces of, of my guiding because I really got to focus it on it in Argentina. And then, you know, I had that to then bring back to some of these other, other places that I'm, you know, lucky to spend time. Mm-hmm.
0: When you look back at all that and all that travel in different places where, where you fished and lived, are, are there any like funny stories or memorable moments that really stick out to you?
1: Hmm. That's a good question. There are definitely a lot of funny stories. I'm trying to think of one that's going to, that's going to pop right out and stick out to me. Um, let's see here. That might stump me a little bit here. I might have to come back to that one, Hunter.
0: I'll, I'll cheat because I heard something that, that I thought was kind of funny. I heard that you once did a guide season in an RV or a trailer and forced <laughs> your wife to have non-heated showers the whole season. Is that true? <laughs> Yeah that
1: is that is definitely solid and accurate. <laughs>
0: just is that just so normative to you that type of thing doesn't st- stand out? <laughs> you know,
1: to be honest, right now it doesn't. I my life has been so it has been fluid to say the least over these past few years. I've, I really don't have a home base right now. I'm not complaining one bit. Um, I've bounced around between a lot of different places these past few years. And, and so one of the ways, you know, cause I think my wife and I, and my wife is just as committed as I am, I think to living this, you know, this outdoor lifestyle where, um, you know, we're d- doing things a little bit non-traditionally, and uh, and there's certainly sacrifices that go along with that. And so mm. when we were we were going, you know, back and forth between the Bahamas and coming back to. Coming back to Maine for the summer, so I could I could guide striped bass, and it just didn't make sense to pull all of our stuff out of storage, and and so we bought a little camper, and we have some great farms that ha- or some great friends that have this little coastal farm, um, not too far from the boat ramp. So we we asked them if we can put our little seventeen foot camper there and pretty much just live off the grid out of it for the summer and yeah no no hot showers. I mean, we weren't plugged in at all. We basically had some some batteries that we would charge and bring to and from the camper and and uh you know, we'd be filling up fresh water at gas stations. We truly sound like bums when I'm saying this out loud, but uh um and you know <laughs> the 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 cold showers were the were the were the kicker for my wife. I think if we had some hot showers, we could have done it a little longer, but we did the we did the full season and then the next year we um, you know, we, we stepped up our game and we actually moved into the farmhouse. So (laughs) that was a little, a little more palatable.
0: (laughs) There's a lot that we could go into there, but I want to make sure we got plenty of time to talk about really the, the main thing that as people have pointed me in your direction that they want to hear about, which is how you target striped bass and what that looks like. So in the summer months, when you're gearing up to, to do that, What's the the main way that you target these fish?
1: Yeah. Um, so maybe I'll kind of talk it through and, um, you know, kind of as it relates to the season. Because, you know, striped bass being a migratory fish, uh, they end up doing so many different things throughout the season um, and in location really as well. So for, for us up here in southern Maine, we are at the northern reaches of... Um, Striped bass is migration. So we've got fish that have just spawned in the spring. They're pouring out of the Chesapeake Bay. They're pouring out of the Hudson River. Um, all, you know, some of these larger coastal drainages, and they're migrating up to, you know, up past New York, up past New Jersey, to Cape Cod, to Maine, where these fish are going to summer for, um, you know, for the entire season. So we start to see stripers come in in middle of May. Probably in, in Southern Maine, we get our smallest fish show up first. So these are the fish that didn't spawn that that show up first. And what's pretty typical is is seeing, you know, just pods of of stripers blitzing on the surface. We have a lot of small bait getting pumped out of the estuaries that, that time of the year. So it's a lot of times that's kind of your, you know, you're really going after these fish in a very visual, kind of exciting. It's probably one of the easier times of year to fish. The fish are smaller and they are you know, very aggressive because they have just traveled three to 500 miles up to, up to where they are now. And they're psyched that they are now can settle in and and feed for the next four or five months. So Mm. that's how the season starts. So we get a lot, you get that element of casting to fish that are boiling and, and blitzing on the, on the surface you know through a good 60 70% of the season there's there's a slowdown period through the warmest parts of the summer that you know the fish don't fish don't school up and feed on the surface like that quite as much in in our zone um, mm-hmm. but so you know once we kind of move away from that you know we might start the trip with chasing some blitzing fish they're really active in the in the mornings and and then we'll probably would move to the to the flats so again like i mentioned we've got a 10 foot tide so we you know we start to see we start to see those uh, i mean those fish will spend an entire tide cycle on the flat but there's you know kind of the the push in the um in the last little bit of the fall can be some of the some of the better mm-hmm. times on the on the flat and we see them start right. As they start to migrate up here, we see fish that, that get right onto the flats. So that's always a, you know, as soon as we get kind of to the end of May there, we, we get some really solid, consistent flats fishing. Um, and so we get, you know, we get some big, big mud flats that are kind of more kind of this back estuary type of feel where, you know, your average fish might be 20 to 20 to 30 inches. Um, and, you know, they'll, I've seen them, I've seen them tail, I've seen them cruise around with their backs out of the water. They do some really interesting stuff. They'll, sometimes they'll lay up on a flat. Sometimes you almost see them lay up like they're tailing, just frozen mm-hmm. in that position. Um, they do a lot, you know, spending time poling around in those areas, you just see stuff that, um, that just feels like it's a treat to see because certain flats, you know, act different than, than other ones. So there's some flats that fish never tail on them. I mean, and, and it all certainly revolves around the, the food source, but, you know, and then there's other flats that, you know, you're seeing, you're seeing tails, you know, every, every couple minutes, which is just a neat thing. we just really don't think about striped bass in that way.
0: Yeah, man, that, that is, There's a, you know, for, I think a lot of us in the Southeast, we, we kind of have one picture of chasing striped bass and, you know, or maybe, I don't know, don't, don't really associate it much with fly fishing and cruising the flats, but that, that sounds incredible for you when you're, when you're fishing something like that, where they're coming in early May and then they look totally different in June. And then towards the end of the season, they're looking different. I mean, how how do you try to? Are, do you have any tips on trying to keep your pulse on a fish that seems like it's always changing and moving throughout the season?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think uh, I think the, the big part of it is just kind of observation and and patience. You know, I mean, I think once we once we we get into a period where things will tend to slow down a little bit, and you just might have to be d- more diligent, you know, and kind of do some of the steps that we do in a lot of different fisheries when when fish get spooky or weary. Um, you know, it's really focus on those very productive times a day, uh, maybe lengthening the leader, going to a smaller tippet size, being more willing to, to change flies from, um, you know, from crab to shrimp, to small bait fish, really just seeing what the fish are doing and, and what they're eating on the flat can, can play a huge role. Um, and even just strategy too, from my end, I mean, it seems like some days I'll get on the flat and, you know you'll see a small group of fish coming from 100 feet away and and they'll take a 90 degree right turn and so clearly they've they've seen us and sometimes they really are you know striped bass are not built like redfish or or bonefish where they're they're looking you know they're they're built to really be looking down and their mouth is kind of oriented down you know they really are not built like that at all so they're they're doing something that's kind of going against their their body type and so i think in some ways they're a little bit little bit more on edge when they're on the flat. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, sometimes instead of pursuing the fish, I'll, I'll post up in spots and try and be very, you know, really conceal ourselves, um, and let fish pass by. So it's, it, it really, you know, kind of tweaking all those different little tools that we have, you know, we still, still will find success and sometimes it's pressure. If it's pressure, it's we're, we're going to be going to flats that, um, that aren't getting fish nearly as much. Um, and, and that can that can be definitely one of the more significant um, mm. factors in these fish for sure.
0: Yeah, talk, talk me through, let's say that I'm on the bow of the boat and we, we went out, we caught a couple small striped bass that were kind of blitzing the surface and then now we're over on a flat and we're getting some shots. Like talk me through like an ideal shot on, on a striped bass.
1: Yeah, so with um it, it definitely varies a little bit whether we're throwing i think you know our two major buckets would be you know shrimp or crab so with with crab i like to be very specific i like to try and try and get that that fly lifeless on the bottom before the fish ever even detects it hitting the water so you know we might be taking that shot at five to ten feet in front of that fish let that fly settle if that fish feels or sees that fish drop into the water and you see that fish's body language change a little bit you might not have to do a single thing just make sure there's no tension in your line ready for that fish to tip down and just long strip set so you know it, it's i love that about the fishing crabs for sight fishing crabs for stripers because it's it's you know it's such a delicate presentation and even the slightest little twitch when that fish is coming to your fly it'll you know it'll spook um hmm. you know and if your fly's tipped over funny he's gonna look at it and 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 run off um so you know that's how i like to present crabs and shrimp Or you know it's very similar to um you know, to how you'd fish a shrimp to, to a bonefish or a redfish. You really just want them to get them to see it, to track it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of times it's a much, it's a much lighter pattern. So we might be putting it two or three feet in front of that fish, kind of tr- always try to draw that pattern away from that fish, never towards it. And, uh, you know, little bumps, the pause so often seals the deal for, for stripers on the shrimp and, and shrimp and crabs can also be fished in so many different elements. You can swing them across channels. You can, you can dead drift them through channels. You know, some people will, will fish crabs deep and just crawl them back, you know, very, very slowly over sandy bottoms on the coast. And it's a really good way to catch bigger fish too.
0: Mm. Is there a pretty good? I mean, I know that the that there's a huge community around targeting, you know, striped bass. But is there a pretty good community in the area that you're at with guides and people who have really dedicated their life to it?
1: Um, there, it's it's spread out. You know, it feels like a lot of things with New England feel um, feel like everything's close, but it's spread out. You know, there's like, I feel like I could find all these different little niches of what people are up to in in these small little pockets around us in the coast, and so you get. You know, when you look at New England as a whole, I would say, yes, 100 percent. There's you know, there's a lot of really cool, really cool names and and folks that have been dedicated their whole lives to the sport and passing it on. And, you know, in my little zone, there's maybe four or five guides um, and we all kind of have our little little niches. Don't bump into each other too much. And, you know, if you go another 30 miles up the coast, you're going to find, you know, a similar thing. There's there's going to be, um, you know, another four or five guides. And um, and so, yeah, there's definitely definitely a good a good scene up here for it. Um, there's a there's mm-hmm. a fair amount of water and and in uh, and a lot of access for for people to to either go out and do it on their own or to hire a guide. There's a lot of options.
0: Yeah, I mean, when I think about like a a migrate like a migrating fish, you know, it kind of reminds me of what we see down here with with tarpon, where you know people are texting each other from different zones. Hey, we just had a good push of fish, like, and you know that type of thing. Is that is with these fish as they make their kind of migration? Is is there a similar type of connection that people have with guys across the entire Northeast?
1: Yeah, there is, and and that's another one of the just one of the interesting things that I'm, I'm i'm sure hardcore tarpon anglers just get deep into is Um, you know, it is so cool because it does connect all of us on this one coast and, you know, we've got this one greater stock of fish that's migrating through and, and some of these, some of these fish have preferences to be in different areas at different time. And so the the migration is just a fascinating thing. And so, yeah, we're, we're always kind of, you know, chatting with, I mean, for us in Maine, the big, big fisheries beneath us, or it's always interesting to hear what's going on on Cape Cod. That's always, uh you know that we always know things are getting very close to us or if there's a big fish of you know big push of fish coming through Cape Cod we know we might have a couple you know in a couple weeks we might be looking different Boston gets you know some really really interesting um mm-hmm. striper fishing too where they they've been having some pods of just massive fish that have been hanging around through the bulk of the summer and we're just have our fingers crossed that they decide to push north but um mm-hmm you know, because there, there are these little, especially with stripers, there's these little pockets of absolutely massive fish that like to stick together. And mm-hmm. um, we get some big ones up here, but we don't get those giant pockets of them.
0: Yeah. And, you know, kind of in doing my research, I know that you've spoken a lot about the conservation piece of trying to keep your fishery, you know, trying to help your fishery become stronger and stronger from season to season and trying to, to kind of stop a decline. Could you speak to, to, what you're trying to do for the conservation of striped bass?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, that's probably like my biggest my biggest concern. Right now I I really really hope that I can I can do this and offer, you know, some great levels of experience of because the fishery is still in an in excellent shape in 3 years and that's that's potentially all at risk. So, you know, to go quickly into it is You know, we've our biggest issue with striped bass is just is just straight up overfishing, Um, you know, and it's a lot of people point point the finger at commercial. It's not the commercial. It's really the recreational folks. Um, You know, the commercial commercial striped bass fishery is, you know, it does have its um, its challenges for for the fishery as a whole, because typically it's extracting the largest, most productive female breeders out of the population. Um, But it's a much, much smaller number of fish. And then you look at the recreational um you know cohort and we've got an incredibly accessible fish that anybody can just go step out onto the coast from maryland to maine um and have a chance of catching a striped bass if it's the right time of year um and if it's the right time of year you might have a, a chance of having one of your best fishing days of your life you know standing right on a rock on um, the coast of Massachusetts, which is just a really cool thing. So I think it gives it, you know, this fishery has a ton, a ton of access and, you know, and there's a big catch and keep, um, mentality with, with stripers, you know, I mean, people consider, a, you know, a a fish that is over 28 inches. Um, if that's the regulation in your state as a keeper, you know, the fish that you can take home, people didn't even the keeper defines a whole size range of, of striped bass because it's so built into our, you know, the mentality of catching and keeping these fish. So that's, that's really our biggest problem is, you know, we have too many fish coming out of the water. Um, and our management commission, um, is really an unaccountable um you know body at this uh at this point um you know they they will come out and ask for public opinion and i'm on the i'm on the board of the American Saltwater Guides Association and i i represent the state of Maine for for our group and you know so we new regulations came down the the pike it was it was obvious what we all had to do but public comment back, came back at, you know, 90% or so. Don't quote me exactly on that, but in support of a regulation that was going to really help to rebuild the population. And our commission went completely against that and put in a regulation that is not only going to hurt these fish, but it's going to put the future of our striped bass population completely in the crosshairs of being harvested over these next three years. So, um, you know, it really kind of all revolves around these these um you know these size class of fish so we have this 2015 year class of fish which is this it's an awesome size fish right now it's like a 26 to to 28 inch fish um or excuse me probably 25 to to 28 inch and so that fish is just on the cusp of of getting into the slot of where we're going to be able to harvest these fish. So we've got this huge stock of fish. We just changed our limit to a slot and now we have millions of fish that are coming into this slot that are going to be, um, you know, people have the ability to harvest and we really don't have a lot of fish coming up behind them. So our biggest thing is like, how do we protect these year classes moving forward so they can recruit up into large productive spawning females? And, Sorry to to get too deep into the to the weeds on that. I'm certainly passionate about it and we have to make mm-hmm. some significant changes if we want to keep fishing for these fish.
0: Yeah, and I mean a common thread on, on the show is talking with people about what they're trying to do to help ensure the the best health of their fishery in their own backyard. And so it's always interesting just to hear about what different challenges people are facing and concerns they have. What do you feel like as a as a guide, what do you feel like you're your best path to try to make a difference is.
1: Uh, I think, you know, it's, it's been, we've kind of had to like build from the ground up on, on that. And I think, you know, the, the first step is building a, a, you know, really a, a group of recreational anglers that can be mobilized to share their voice, to get the public opinion out there and put pressure on our, um, you know, our, our fisheries management commissions and and councils. and, so, you know, the ASGA, the guides associations, um, I think we're in year three, but it's really a group that was kind of spawned out of frustration of, of things not getting done of seeing, um, ASMFC, our management body, just say one thing and do the other, or say we're going to rebuild striped bass in a 10-year timeline, and that's our rule for ourselves. And then they make a plan to rebuild it in 15 years, which is just so unfair to all the stakeholders. So there's just a lot of like frustrations from years and years and years of poor management of our, our East Coast fisheries, and ASGA was born. And now ASGA is, is giving this voice to um, you know, to recreational anglers, whether you're, you know, whether you're bottom fishing for flounder or whether it's striped bass or, or bluefish. you know, striped bass is definitely one of the, the major fights right now. But, you know, I think a big part of it is just growing that cohesive voice. So, you know, we're, we're up against, you know, really well-funded, um, very tight little groups like the, um, you know, like the commercial industry, they're able to, you know, we're not going against those folks, but they're able to lobby and they're able to pull their interests together. So, so tightly, but us as recreational anglers, we're, you know, we've got people that are shorebound, We've got people that are fishing from boat. We've got fly, we've got spin, we've got bait, we've got surf casters, you know, there's all these different little sects. So being able to kind of get your arms around that group as a whole, have a united message that basically all we want is fish in 50 years, in a hundred years for our kids, kids. And so I think that's probably one of the most challenging things to do. And it just takes time, but we're, you know, we're building that community and building that network and, um, our leaders certainly understand the, uh, the political side of the fight. And so we're, we're trying to come at it from, you know, from all sides and, and make some systemic changes that will be able to manage all of our East coast fisheries and never let them become overfished because. The management triggers come up, and in the past, some of these these you know these management bodies have have ignored them or just continued to kick the can down the road. And all of a sudden, you know the the stakeholders of the fishery are, um, you know, are seeing a completely different thing in the water, and they're not able to operate their livelihood or get those in, that intrinsic value out of the the waters.
0: Hmm. Yeah, we definitely have the same. I think issue just across the board of that, you know, there's just with recreational anglers, there's, it's just, you know, disjointed, you know, it's fragmented across a bunch of different smaller cliques and groups. And then sometimes it can just be hard to work together to get everybody on the same page about, is this an issue? What's the issue? What's the best solution forward? And we've seen a lot of progress in my area just in people starting to understand the significance of water and we can all agree that we want the water to be um as natural we want good flow we want i mean it's, so that's been cool to see that grow even though there's a lot of disagreeance around you know what size fish or how many fish or there's a just we could go on and on about what different recreational anglers and guides disagree about i think we we all have been able to find a common voice in trying to fight for You know, we can all agree that we don't want sewage just pumping into our fishery, you know, and that's a starting point, I think, for a lot of recreational anglers is, okay, let's start with what we agree on and then build some, you know, build from there, you know, and I think that that's hopefully something with this podcast that we can continue to touch base on. But if it's good with you, I'd love to um, do some rapid fire questions on my list that I've kind of put together here.
1: Yeah, for sure, man.
0: So one is, um, I heard that, that, uh, when it comes to, you know, uh, being carbon neutral, that you've taken that really serious. I'm just curious kind of how you got to that point and and what that transition looked like.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so I talked to a guy named Dave McCoy, who's, um, you know, well-known fishing guide and, um, host and has a has a you know big shop in Seattle and he runs a bunch of guides and he called me this spring and told me, I've got something you might be interested in. I just, I just went totally carbon neutral with my business. And I'm just scratching my head. Like how, how on earth did you do that? And that is such a cool, such a cool thing. Um, and so that's really how it started was, you know, hearing from, from Dave McCoy and, and his shop and his outfit. And I was just really impressed and have respect for for that dude, so I, you know, I I dug into it, and Dave got help um, from a really cool guy named Rick Crawford, who's based down in in Charleston, has a company called Emerger Strategies, where he's basically helping to, you know, helping outdoor businesses to be more green, more sustainable, go carbon neutral, um, and actually show how that that is, it's you know, it's also good for the bottom line, it's good for our, and it's good for our planet, so. Um, so I started chatting with, with Rick and, you know, it turned out that I was, I was going to be the first fishing guide to be pursuing, um, carbon neutrality with my business, which was also kind of exciting. I kind of saw it as a, a chance to be, and I was definitely up for, up for the task, a chance to be, you know, kind of a, kind of a leader on it and try and push some friends and push some other, some businesses to, to get involved and, you know, other guides, of course, and, so, because it's so easy, and and why not? Why not make some effort? Um, so, what really just the quick? Because I think there's a lot of questions around what is carbon neutral. So, just a quick, quick rundown on the steps there. It's you know you have to take an inventory of your business. So, you get this chance to fully understand you know, what are all the outputs in my business and how are they affecting the planet? Um, So first, you know, that was the first step and that was very valuable. It just gave me this. I had now I have all these different categories where I'm burning fossil fuel and I can understand what how I can reduce that, um, which is certainly um, probably the most important thing to do. And and, you know, and and it just gave me a lot of great data that I could look forward into the next year and, and make some positive changes. So. You know, second after after you take the um, the inventory, you know, is uh, which I just kind of touched on, is then trying to figure out, yeah, how to strategize and reduce in different areas. And then third, you'll have this remaining balance of um, you know of greenhouse gases that you're not able to reduce through through changes through the upcoming year. And with those remaining um, greenhouse gases, you can purchase a, a credit. That, it, that will help offset your footprint. So that will ultimately achieve carbon neutrality. So again, the credit is something people have some questions on too. And so what is the credit? You know, I bought a, my renewable energy credits, I bought from a forest in Massachusetts. So this is, this is a forest where three towns have come together and they have put put land aside and they've set it up to sell carbon credits and they've set this forest up. So it's going to be managed to sequester carbon. So that basically means this forest is, forest is going to be managed to to capture carbon from the atmosphere, store it and help mitigate some of our um, our effects that, you know, we're we're putting into the to the planet. So you know through the water and the trees being kept intact and there's actually now by me purchasing these credits it's helping to create value for this land that is just being left undeveloped which is truly vital for the health of our planet so you know it's that's kind of where the carbon credit comes into play somebody else might be buying their carbon credit from you know a solar bank that is you know is raising money to to expand and your your offset is helping to put more solar panels on a tract of land that is going to make us less dependent on fossil fuels so it's when you take a step back you know it's it's definitely not saving the world Um, but it's taking a small step within your life, within your day that you can control. And that's what, honestly, that was probably the most value for me out of it. And then just being able to have some of these conversations and, you know, try and spread the word, try and, try and get more people involved. Um, cause it's kind of one of those things like, why not? You know, it was, it took me a little bit of time. As a result, I know more about my business. I kind of, I've been able to learn a little bit more about, um, you know, carbon offsets, the challenges that our planet's going through, how I'm contributing to it. And so it just, I found it just to be such a valuable, valuable experience and knowing, you know, I've had some people have brought up some pushback of like, you know, saying that it's, you know, it's pretty hypocritical, you know, how can we really be um, patting ourselves on the back when we are still burning fossil fuels? And I think a really important thing to remember is just to not let perfection hinder progress, and I keep coming back to that because if, if we're trying to be perfect, we're never going to get there. But let's just keep taking mm. little steps and doing the the right things along the way. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's good. That's helpful. When you look back at your your life and your development as an angler, um, what do you feel like was most influential or shaping to you?
1: Hmm, That's a good question. You know, I think it was I think it was probably maybe it's a little cliche, but it's probably those mo- that that moment when you realize you're no longer really going out there to target fish and it's and you drop that expectation of whatever you wanted to have happen or were expecting it to have happen on the water and just know that when you step on the water you've already accomplished that. I think those were probably like, I can't remember that exact moment when that shift happened. I I imagine it probably was gradual over time, but I think now, now more than ever, I get more, more out of fishing than ever. And I think it's because I don't have an expectation with it. And I just, it's just too damn fun to be out there.
0: (laughs) If you weren't, um, like if you weren't using your summers to target striped bass, what fish would you be trying to position yourself to target?
1: You know the thing that comes to mind is musky. <laughs>
0: I didn't I didn't expect that. Yeah.
1: Um I think you know I think for one because it's in my state um a little bit of a controversial fish in my state because they have uh they have um they're in typically native brook trout water and they're an invasive fish. So they've, they've kind of snuck in through Canada and through, you know, years and years old stocking programs, but you know, they're here to stay. So, but they are a cool fish that's up in the North main woods. It's just such a different, such a different way to go after them. Um, and I think, you know what I, like, I can't even fathom going down to Florida and starting to guide or some foreign fishery as a 35 year old, you know, so I think that that's probably why Muskie comes to mind. There's maybe some other fish that I'd, I'd prefer to catch, but like, you know, it just seems tangible. Um, it's in my own mm-hmm. backyard. And uh, and I think there's a lot to be discovered up in northern Maine surrounding that fish.
0: So that kind of transitions well to my next question. So to date, I think that you are the guide who represents the coldest region of the world that I've interviewed, what are some (laughs) tips on, (laughs) what are some tips on fishing in cold weather situations?
1: Yeah. Um, I got, you know, as a guide, this really, this, this really rang to me. Um, somebody, it was probably my first or second year guiding and, um, this mentor was like, Kyle, don't ever be colder than your client. Um, I thought that was probably some of the best advice mm. ever. Um <laughs> so That's good though, yeah. <laughs> never wanna be yeah, never don't ever want to be off the water more than your client does because of the weather. <laughs> um That's good. So, But, you know, I mean, I'm pretty lucky. I mean, I do guide in in Maine, but, you know, May to October, it is just, it's beautiful weather. And my guiding up here kind of shuts, kind of shuts down for the winter. And that's why I've ended up in the warm waters of, of Argentina through our winter and in the Bahamas. And I'm, I'm definitely plotting to, to spend more winters in, in warm water and Um, in the future which is looking like that will continue to be a reality once the world settles back down but uh so i i'm kind of thankful that i don't have a ton of really good tips off the top of my head for you on that
0: (laughs) (laughs) i like that though don't ever be colder hotter more hungry less hydrated you could fill in the blank yeah you know that that makes uh perfect perfect sense so I know that you're friends with Marty and he was one of the guys who really tried to push me your direction. Do you have any good Marty stories from over the years?
1: Oh, that's a good, that's a good, yeah, actually I do. A good one came to mind. So when Marty was, um, working hand in hand with, uh, Dylan Schmitz and, you know, their, their main operation was, uh, you know, video content production and working with brands. And, um, I started actually working with those guys a little bit and kind of like a sales and business development capacity. So I, I came along on a couple, couple trips and we did a, uh, you know, Louisiana, we had that on the calendar and you know, we pulled the trigger and got down there. We had a friend that was starting a mothership operation. So it just all sounded like it was just going to be unbelievable. Um, And we get down to Louisiana, we drug a couple boats in, um, the guides we were fishing with had a couple boats and, you know, it's kind of like a combo DIY. I was actually running one of the boats and pulling for the whole trip, even though I've never, never been down there, but we had some guys kind of leading us around and we got down there and it was just the windiest, shittiest weather that you can imagine. (laughs) Basically the one week that you don't want to be down there. And we, you know, we had this mothership boat that is just parked at the dock for, for five days, just can't go a single place and we -hmm. had this big big plan and so so I was with Marty the whole time in this tiny little boat me Marty and some of the rest of this crew were all just kind of getting to know each other so it was just kind of one of those like accelerated like you're stuck we had plenty of booze and yeah we just we we kind of had to make our own fun on that trip
0: (laughs) yeah as happens often with Louisiana (laughs) yep (laughs) That's the, that's the, uh, oh, that's the first tip, I guess, but, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah I
1: didn't see, I felt like I had a lot of sh- other, other people I could console with on that one.
0: <laughs> yeah. So my, my, my last question is kind of one that, that I like to, to ask different guys, especially guys like yourself who have been able to guide and, and work in a lot of different contexts. If you could go back and sit next to yourself on an airplane or in a truck on your way to, um, colorado or montana wherever it was that you you first began your guiding career what advice what tips would you give yourself
1: hmm that's a good question um you know i mean i think i think something that i've probably spent a lot more time thinking about as a 30 year old that I didn't as a 20 year old or even in my late teens when I am when I was just getting into guiding was you know like what is what is like my calling what is my purpose you know and I think I've never been more clear of what that is now because I you know I'm in theory, I should, I should know the most about myself at this very given moment right now. And I look back as a 20 year old, just kind of trying to figure life out and, you know, going down a lot of different paths. And I think it's, I think it's a process that we all certainly go through. And maybe some of us are more motivated than, than others to, to find what is that, what is that thing that you should be doing that is just going Mm. to, that is, you know that is like nurturing your soul you know kind of that brings you to life and you know I I got into guiding after college and I wasn't really asking those questions or thinking about it I just you know I was just following kind of that next intuitive step and I ended up getting out of guiding for a stretch and I'd say that's where I really really learned like you know sitting at a desk or you know developing a business behind a desk is, is not where I'm supposed to be. So, you know, I think that's, I guess to answer the question more succinctly is just, you know, if I was young, I would be asking myself, what, what is your purpose, you know, and, Mm. and can I start getting to work on that right now? Um, so yeah, that's probably the big takeaway for me.
0: Yeah, that's good, man. Well, I look forward to sitting down and doing another podcast with you down the down the road, man, but I'm grateful for the time. So thanks for hopping on and, and being a part of the podcast.
1: Yeah, Hunter. Hugely appreciated, man. It was great chatting with you.
0: Thanks again for listening to The Captain's Collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy. This is The Captain's Collective.